Would you grab your Bibles and turn to Jude 11 through 13. So woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been rescued forever. Francis Schaeffer once said, John the Baptist raised his voice on the basis of the biblical absolutes against the personification of power in the person of Herod, and it cost John his head. In the Roman Empire, the Christians in the first century refused to worship Caesar along with Christ. And this was seen by those in power as disrupting the unity of the empire And for many, this also was a costly choice. Then Schaefer says, But let us now in our day and time be realistic in another way too. If we as Christians do not speak out as authoritarian governments grow from within and come from outside, eventually we or our children will be the enemy of society and the state. No truly authoritarian government can tolerate those who have a real absolute by which to judge its arbitrary absolutes and who speak out and act that absolute. This was the issue with the early church in regard to the Roman Empire. And though the specific issue will in all probability take a different form than Caesar worship, the basic issue of having an absolute by which to judge the state and society and the church will be the same. And here is a sentence to memorize, he said, to make no decision in regard to the growth of an authoritarian government or a liberal church is already a decision for both of those kind of things. So in light of that, we have been walking through the book of Jude, particularly focusing on having absolutes for the church in regard to what we believe, what is to guide us, to not allowing culture to be the guide and the, and the practice. And our culture now is consistently, I think you know this, this is not a shock to anybody, is consistently telling us as Christians how we ought to believe after thousands of years of firm belief. And we are being told consistently, get in line, people of God. Shut your mouth. Follow what we want you to believe and what we want you to affirm. So this issue is not new. It was happening in the first century with the first church. Again, I've mentioned as we walk through this, about three and a half decades into the birth of the church, the church was dealing everywhere with false teaching, new things arising, not from the great fear of things from without. That was happening. Rome was persecuting Christians. They were arrest- Rome was arresting Christians. Christians were being killed because they wouldn't worship Caesar. They were being put in prison. Hebrews talks about that some of the believers had all of their property confiscated 
from them because of their stance and their love for Jesus. And so this is not a new issue. We have just, those of us who have grown up here in America and been in and around the church, we have just grown up where it's been comfortable and there's been no cost really to our faith. But we are growing to see more and more, at least verbally, attacks upon what we believe. And so Jude was dealing with this. Jesus warns us about this. Paul warns us. Jeremiah in the Old Testament warns about this. Isaiah warns us about false prophets. This has been around for the very, from the very beginning. People wanting to infiltrate the people of God and to teach something that's different. Now in today's world, we have something that's a big, huge movement that's primarily among the younger generations, 30 years old and down. And there are many who are older, like some of us in the room and like me, who are deconstructing, tearing down their once-held beliefs, and they are doing all kinds of damage to the younger generation with their Instagram posts, their blogs, and a number of different things. So I want to show you 52 seconds of what I'm talking about, and you'll see this in a moment. This person has 15,000 followers. And I looked this morning, many of them are of the younger generation. And to affirm some of the beliefs that are coming out today, you will see in just a moment, in 52 seconds, you have to do some pretty significant theological gymnastics to arrive at where you arrive in what we'll see. So if you would, watch the screen and listen to this. There are no gay people in Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no such thing as gay in the Bible, at least in the way we understand it. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah was about dominance through shaming. When the townsmen asked for Lot's guests so they could know them, it wasn't a matter of sexual attraction. They wanted to subjugate and humiliate these foreigners in order to put them in their place, to shame them for domination. God did not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because the men were gay, but for their general reputation for violence and sinfulness. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 49 to 50, says God destroyed them for things like pride, injustice, and arrogance. Now, I don't think this story is historical, but that's another question entirely. The point of the story, though, is that Sodom and Gomorrah is not a proof text that God hates gays. Thinking so would be bringing our issues into that ancient story. Yeah. But I'm telling you, church, if you don't get this, you need to get it. This kind of teaching is everywhere. It's rampant. And the younger generation is listening to this heresy. This guy's a heretic. This is an apostate. This is what apostate teaching sounds like. It's, it's an abandoning of the truth of the Scripture. It's interesting. He quotes Ezekiel there. And what he, he, he gives great emphasis to verse 49, but you have to put everything in context. Verse 50 that he references in verse 50 of Ezekiel 16 is the exact same word abomination that you find in the book of Leviticus that's about homosexual sex. So again, you just have to ignore things to be able to arrive at saying, well, I don't even believe this is a true story. You heard him say that. I don't even believe that this is a true story. So if you're wondering why the book of Jude is relevant to us, this is just a example. I could spend the rest of the time today showing you clips like this that are out there literally everywhere. 
So as we come to the book of Jude, and we come particularly to verse 11, 12, and 13, Jude is now going to give his last set of three in this letter. And he's going to begin this by saying this, Woe to them, woe to those who think in this manner. And he gives three specific examples that I want to review this morning because some of you probably weren't here last week and you didn't bless yourself by watching me online. And so you have no idea what we're talking about. And so I want to review for you what we looked at last week. And so Jude gives three Old Testament examples in a New Testament context For the New Testament church to understand that this falsehood that existed in the Old Testament is like the falsehood that existed in the New Testament. And there were lessons to be learned from these. And so he gives an example of Cain. He gives an example of a guy named Balaam. And he gives an example of a man named Korah. Now I want to remind us this morning that Jude is dealing with not Roman persecution, from with outside of the church, Jude is dealing with people who have crept inside the church and are affirming and speaking things that the Scripture is against. And yet they've come in unaware and they are hidden, and we'll talk more about that today, and they are bringing destruction to the belief system that was to be certain doctrine for the church. And so the first part of of, chapter, of, of Jude verse 4 says, certain people have crept in. In verse 12 he says, they are at your love feast. These kind of potluck dinners, first century potluck meals that happened. They were called love feasts. And then the last part of that he says, and they are feasting with you. And so he's not dealing with people outside the church. He's dealing with people inside the church. Cain is mentioned three times in the New Testament. He is an example of the pathway toward false religion where he tried to set his own terms and conditions before God. And so I want to review Cain because I think it's important for us. Cain was tremendously selfish and self-centered as Cain only wanted to go his way. The way of Cain is choosing one's own way of worship and walking with God that is more individualized and predetermined by the person, not considering anything about what God wants about that. Cain knew the way that he was to sacrifice. He had been told, his brother had been told, he had been told, this is how you are to come to me. And so they both come, both brothers come, to make a sacrifice before the Lord. Abel, his brother, comes in the right manner. Cain comes in his own way, how he sees fit. And he decides on a new path, and that was irreverence. I'm just going to, God, I'm going to come to you on my own way. And so Cain comes to God as he sees fit, not how God had instructed him and told him. Another aspect of the way of Cain is to go your own way, but only in the end to be mad at God when God doesn't bless when we go our own way. And this is also rampant today. Many, many people angry at God for things that are happening in their lives when they have made the choice to walk down those paths without God. And now they've gotten down those paths and want to blame God for the path that they have created by themselves. 
Solomon said it like this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. And so for many, they walk the way. It's Proverbs 14, 12. Walk this way. And this is happening everywhere right now, particularly, again, as I said a while ago, among the younger generations, as they don't like some aspects the Scripture calls them to live by or how the church is making a stand about certain things. And so what you do is what we saw on the screen a while ago. You just ignore things to fit a narrative that is self-centered. This is around a lot today. You'll hear this. If something doesn't sound loving, then it's just rejected. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's just rejected. And I tell you, watch out if you get in the way of a person who embraces the life of Cain. For just as Cain did, he killed his brother out of jealousy and anger over what happened. You see, the way of Cain is this. It is a redefinition or a redefining of what God approves of, what God has spoken of, what God has established. It's the way that seems right to a person but ends in death. Cain's way is a proud way. It's self-willed. Plus, it is the way of every false religion that is on the planet today. It's Masonic in nature. It is Buddhist. It is Hindu. It is humanistic. It is horoscope and star worship. It's the way of the Jehovah's Witness. It is the way of the Mormon. Every pathway that people proclaim today that doesn't say Jesus is it is a man-centered way. It is the way of Cain where people are establishing their own means in their own way and their own reasoning to get to God and to come to, to know God. And from the earliest pages of Scripture, we learn that a blood sacrifice offered through faith is the kind of sacrifice that God accepts. And this is why Abel's was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Let me remind you what the writer of Hebrews says about these two brothers. It's Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what ultimately is this way of Cain? Why is Jude warning us about this? What did Cain ultimately do? Well, he sacrifices. He's religious. God's told him to do something, and he does his on his own. But watch this. He comes to God and offers his works to God. Not a faith in God's word, in the sacrifice that God had instructed him to make. He decided he just would do his own thing. He would redefine what would be acceptable to God. And when God didn't accept it, he was angry at God. And there were consequences to this. You see, God's way is trusting in what he says and doing it and being blessed. Therefore, his way is, becomes a man-made religion, a man, man-made truth, a, a something that's centered on just what we want. And so Cain devises a plan to worship in a way, listen to this, that he knew was unacceptable. And yet he comes anyway to do that. And yet in our culture today, 
we have ministries and churches and blog posts and Instagram things that speak about things that people know that God does not affirm, and yet they do it anyway. So the way of Cain is still present. It is still here and is becoming more prevalent in our day and time. And so ultimately, Cain is the representation of those who are religious. They are. They're religious. They just don't have a relationship with Christ. Oh, they say they believe in God or in a God, but is only a God or a religion that is shaped in that person's own will. And God, by the way, not surprising, rejects that pathway. So that's the way of Cain that Jude says. And we live in this day. This, this is our culture today. We are living in the way of Cain all around us today where people are just deciding, well, I can worship this way. I know the scripture kind of says this, but, you know, God's loving and He's forgiving. And so I can continue to go down this path. And that's not the case. God has set forth how we need to do this. The second thing that Jude warned us about was this one. A guy named Balaam was hired... He was a prophet, prophet for hire, and he would hire himself out to whoever to bring curses or to, or to, to do, do some kind of divination, something connected to sorcery, something connected to witchcraft against other people. And so this guy comes to, this king, Balak, comes to Balaam and says, listen, I'd like to hire you, and I want you to put a curse on the people of God, the Israelites. And so he tries and it doesn't work. He keeps trying and when he, he doesn't get it. And one day his donkey has to talk to him and says, and speak to him and say, Hey, dude, do you not see what's there? He's a prophet who couldn't even see spiritually at all anything around him. And so eventually the curses didn't work. And so he told Balak, I'll tell you what you do. If you will get your women, and he teaches, Balaam teaches the women in the Moabite city to begin to have friendships and relationships with the men of Israel who were camped outside of this city. And eventually the men began to go inside the city. They began to eat at the tables. They began to worship the idols of the Moabite gods and then began to have sexual immorality with them. And so the way of Balaam becomes this way in which other people are taught something that is false that leads to a sensuality, that leads to a danger in regard to immorality. And so here's what Balaam does. He uses his gift for financial profit and he teaches others to consider sin as the more profitable direction for their life. And ultimately, Balaam plays both sides of the religious game. He's kind of for God a bit and he's for financial gain and for himself. He ultimately chooses the God of riches instead of the God of heaven And this pathway is also one where someone like him in a position like mine seeks just to please others and seeks just or doesn't seek to please others, seeks to please himself in the flesh rather than than by living by faith, which pleases the Lord. The last example that Jude gives in regard to those that we need to avoid, one, the way of Cain, setting your own terms as to how you come to God to worship. Balaam's way was, okay, here's the deal. I'm in this to be hired 
and I don't really care about a really set point of belief system. I'm just out there to be hired. And so I will teach others what to do to cause other people who know God to fall into a place of immorality. And lastly, he uses this example of a man named Korah from Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a cousin of Moses and he was a Levite who led a rebellion to get Moses from leadership. Though he was a Levite, he was not part of the priestly line of Aaron, so therefore he didn't serve in the tabernacle and eventually his family in regard to the temple, but they would have priestly duties that they were responsible for. And so as a Levite, again, he had his own God, his own God-centered ministry that he was supposed to do, and he was supposed to exercise, yet he didn't like it. He wanted more. He wanted, he wanted something else, but he wasn't connected to Aaron's line, and so he couldn't do that because God had established through his instruction and through his will that it would be through Aaron's line, but Kor didn't like that. He wanted to change the terms again to fit himself, and so here's what he did. He wanted a ministry and authority of, that Moses had, and there has been many an elder, there's been many a youth minister, or someone else in churches who have sought to remove a pastor or some other leader in favor of themselves throughout the history of the church. So Korah gets a couple other guys with them. They're like, yeah, we're in agreement about this. We don't like Moses thinking that he's just over us all the time. So number 16.2 tells us that they'd gotten, they'd gotten 250 other men to buy into their thinking about Moses and Aaron's leadership. And so number 16.2 says they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, Moses you, and Aaron, you have gone too far. Here, here was their argument. Look around at this congregation. Look right here. You've got 253 men. We're just as holy as you are, Moses. And we're tired of you telling us what to do. We're tired of you exalting yourself over us. So we're going to do something about your leadership, Moses. And so it says this, You have gone too far, for, in all, the, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them as well. So why then do you, Moses, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord. When Korah said this, the scripture says that Moses fell on his face knowing that God's judgment would soon come upon the people. And in this action, Moses shows he's way more of a man of God than Korah is. And he shows that he is God's man. For Korah's actions are only going to bring division. It's going to weaken the congregation. And it's going to cause division, not strength. These men, these 250 men, believed the false teaching of Korah and they followed him to their deaths. And I tell you, many an apostate teacher or misguided church leader or church member have openly defied leadership that God has established in a church only to eventually destroy that church. And I want to make sure that I'm clear about this. That doesn't mean that 
You can't ever say something that's true about leadership in a church. Sometimes there are truthful things that you look at a church and realize, okay, the church's church leadership has made a decision that's not right. But it doesn't mean that immediately you just seek to rebel and cause division. The purpose always is to aim toward restoration, right? Initially, you try to get things to restoration, to a place of repentance. And then if the leadership doesn't listen and the leadership is not being biblical, then you've got a whole other issue. But if you just simply have people in a congregation to decide, I want things to go my way, and to gather a group of people to rebel against godly leadership. And by the way, uh, you're supposed to nod your head about this in a second. There is never going to be perfect church leadership, right? There's not. But a church is not going to have perfect leadership, but it can have godly leadership. It can have godly leaders. And this was the issue. Again, we talked about it last week. Was Moses perfect? No. He didn't get to go into the promised land because of some actions that he took stepping out on his own. And yet, Moses was God's man. And so for Kor to, to rise up and to gather 250 other people to try to usurp what God had established and what God wanted was not the right thing. And so just as God did not allow this in Moses' day, the fact that Jude brings it up is that it was already happening in the New Testament church. God has established the church to be a place of godly order, not defiance and rebellion. Do you hear that? If a church is about rebellion on a, and consistently and, and backbiting, then something is off inside of that. And so this is not the way that God has established things. I've been in ministry 37 years now. Hard to believe because I'm only 45. <laughs> so I've been doing this for a long time and I have learned early on. Actually, I started when I was 20. So you can do the math from there. And if you can't do the math from there, you have other issues in your life as to what my age is. So in my 37 years of ministry now, I have learned that the worst kind of troublemakers in the church are those who have influence as they can quickly gather a group of people against the existing leadership in favor of themselves being elevated and lifted to the same leadership positions that they are trying to get rid of. And this is why at LifePoint we do this. You never rush putting people into leadership positions. You never rush that. So let me give you an example. So someone visited the church not long ago, and I had coffee with them um, that next week. Their first question as we sat down with coffee is, when are you going to let me teach a class? And I said, you're not. <laughs> um, you need to decide if this is where your family needs to plug in. You need to be a part of the body. And once you're a part of the body and you understand who LifePoint is and what our doctrine is and who we are, then we trust if God wants you to teach, then you will be put in a place of leadership to be able to teach. And, and churches make huge mistakes by just 
having a need and there's a void there and just putting people in the leadership position without examining their heart and examining their life over a period of time. So again, this is why you never rush putting people into leadership positions for we must be careful to put humble, godly people in leadership. And so Jude, dealing with this reality, says you've got to avoid these three types of leaders. And these three types of leaders, they are around today. Have you watched a television preacher lately that's all about income for themselves and they will teach anything whatsoever to keep the money coming into the coffers? And that is not to be the case. And so the way of Balaam is still around today. The way of Korah is still around today, rebelling against godly leadership and right doctrine in a church for people being selfish. The way of Cain is dominant today in the Western church where people are inventing their own ways that they can come to God in worship and basically demanding of God, you've got to be okay with this God that I've come this way. And God's like, well, I'm not okay with that. And then they're angry at God. So these three things, would you agree with me, are still present today. They are still dominant in our day and time. Well, now what Jude is going to do is he's going to go to the heart of these type of leaders. Leaders like Cain, leaders like Balaam, leaders like Korah, and he's going to describe their nature. And he's going to use some words kind of in, from nature um, to kind of give a picture of what these are like. So look with me in verse 12. We got to verse 12. Far family, betting on whether I could get to verse 12, and we are. So let's read 12 and 13 again, and we're going to walk through these principles. So these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So what I'd like to do now is I want to walk through these, each of these briefly, as he describes the nature of leaders that were present then and that are today. And these are a description of lives, of the worst kind of description that you want to have about church leadership. The first one is simply this. There's seven of them, by the way, and don't panic. We're going to get through this. The first one is this. Jude calls them hidden reefs at your love feast. So again, I remind us. He says, these are in your church. They are sitting next to you as you worship. When you come together for the potluck meal and you come together for the Lord's Supper, these are people that are present with you, gathering consistently with you inside the church. But they are hidden. They have snuck in. He talks about that early in the book of Jude. And they have, they're hiding themselves. And as they hide themselves, they are dangerous. The Titanic. Everybody knows the story of the Titanic. 
It was said of the Titanic, unsinkable. This, this, this ship that's been made, it's unsinkable. But hiding underneath the waters was what? An iceberg. And when the Titanic hit the iceberg, it tore a hole in the, in the Titanic and it sunk. There are, in the church, people who are like big, huge icebergs or rocks in the middle of the ocean that wreck ships. They are hidden under the water. And when you crash into those, they rip open a life. They rip open a family. And it tears that family apart. And there is a drowning. And so Jude says, listen, this is what you need to know is that you've got to be careful. You've got to test the spirits. You've got to listen to what... And you've got to know what the Scripture says. You've got to listen to what's taught. Because even in a church like LifePoint that is deeply committed to the truth of God's Word, we should never be naive enough to think that there might be somebody who wanted to come in and begin to, to gather a group of people or begin to say something that is contrary to sound doctrine. And so... Jude says this, church, watch out for those who are deceptive, who have false motives. They are sheep and wolves. They are wolves that are dressed as sheep and they are dangerous. So he says, listen, they are deceptive and they are dangerous. So he speaks that uh, he uses this phrase at your love feast in the early church. Um, particularly as well, we just experienced this when we were over in the Middle East a few weeks ago. Um, unbelievable ho- practice of hospitality. We met, we, we met people on the street, and after 10 minutes they said, will you come to my house right now and let's have lunch? They just invited us in. So, so this was the practice of the early church, but there was a unique thing be- that began to happen with hospitality at the early church. There's a new added element, and that was this, is that everybody had been rescued by the blood of Jesus, and there was a, a love for one another that was really unique. And so they would come together, and they would have these things that they called them love feasts. And they were God-honoring. They would, it was kind of, a again, a first-century church potluck. Everybody likes potluck, and Christians love to eat. And so they would, they would come together, and they would bring food together. Part of the design of these love feasts was is you would have poor people a part of your church. And as you have this, as the richer people would bring food, it would be an opportunity for some of the poor people to be able to have a meal and not struggle as much. But eventually what happened over time is that these love feasts, these gathering around food, um, they began to take on an immoral aspect to them. Usually after these meals, they would participate in the Lord's Supper and can you imagine coming to a meal together, which, by the way, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that at these love feasts, people were at church, at church, before they took the Lord's Supper, were getting drunk. They were bringing alcohol to these gatherings, and they were getting drunk, and then they were doing the Lord's Supper. Um, do you think that might affect how the Lord's Supper went? Do you think that might affect how, how they approached the Lord's Supper and to honor Him? And so, so as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, as Jude writes here, he says this, there are people that have come in and they are only about themselves and they are hidden reefs and they're coming to your love feasts, but they are not godly people. They are troublemakers. 
that are going to bring about trouble in your life. I think partly Jude is also thinking about the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Was there anybody present in the room that night who had another agenda and wanted money? Judas, yeah. So I think part of this is Jude thinking back to to that reality. Also the reality of what was happening in the New Testament church. So what's needed to make sure something like that doesn't happen in a church? Godly leaders. That when they hear about something, it's addressed. The problem with the church in Corinth is it was just being allowed to remain. Instead of saying, okay, next time we come together, okay, we're not going to allow this to happen at the, at the love feast and, and when we participate in the Lord's Supper, but nobody was stopping it. So the way you avoid these things is to have godly leaders that are committed to the truth of the Scripture. Leaders who are not able to discern the times or doctrine, they are like Judas, and they will wreck a place or they will bring destruction around them. I think I've shared this enough. No, I haven't shared it enough. I've shared it a lot. Enough that you should know it. Listen to what Paul said. In Acts 20, 29, and 31 through 31. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he says, therefore, speaking to the Ephesian elders, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. So he, he for three years said, listen, this is the truth that I'm teaching you, but you need to always be alert because people are going to try to come in and they're going to try to bring some kind of destruction. Paul experienced this himself. He had two men that were inside of his inner ministry circle. And I believe Paul was a great leader. I believe he was a great discipler. And yet even Paul experienced this as well. So he writes in 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith. He says, Timothy, hold your faith. Keep a good conscience that's, a, that's active and alive to the truth of God's Word and against sin. And he says, if you don't, here's what happens. By rejecting faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of, our, of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So there is... This picture here, he says this, church, be aware of deceptive people who have another agenda in the church. They are hidden reefs, hidden icebergs that will tear a family apart and that will tear a church apart. That's why when you give counsel to a friend, another believing friend comes to you and gives counsel to you, You don't tell them what they need to hear. What do we tell them? What the Scripture says. Because if you don't tell them what the Scripture says and you affirm feelings, 
you could be a catalyst for the breakup of a marriage. And we don't want that. So we, we've got to, again, it, this is said a lot today, I know, in political circles, but it's absolutely true. Facts over feelings. Truth over feelings. Yes, we share truth in love, but it's really important that we are careful. Secondly, he says this, and they, as they are with you, they feast without fear. And I talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, so let me, let me just share a little bit of the verse, verses. This is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. He says, so he's, he's done talking about they've come to eat, and, and there's drunkenness that's there. There is um, people gorging themselves and not allowing the poor people to be able to eat, and they're just doing whatever they want to do. And so, so Paul says to them, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's a serious idea here. And he says, so, so let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Jesus, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. And he says this, he goes so far to say this, this is why some in your congregation, you are sick. Is that you're coming to the Lord's Supper and you're only thinking about yourself. You're coming intoxicated. You are gorging yourself, thinking of yourself. You're not letting the poor people be able to eat. You're coming to the Lord's table with partiality. You are doing all of these kinds of things. And because you're doing so, then you come to the communion table, the Lord's table, and you are not thinking about the preciousness and the glory of the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. And if you're consistently doing this over and over, you are heaping condemnation upon yourself. And you're sick because of that. That's why when Mark gets up here, he tries to remind everybody that we, we come to the Lord's table the first Sunday of every month examining ourselves getting things right and making sure that we come to the table. So Jude says these people have no fear at all. They just were coming and being a part of the congregation, being intoxicated, showing partiality, gorging themselves, thinking of themselves, and doing so with no conviction, no spiritual sense, and feeling nothing about what they were doing. Before the Lord. Here's the third one. Third description is they were shepherds feeding themselves. This word feeding is obviously a shepherd word, a pastoral word that's supposed to be referencing the taking care of others and making sure everybody is being loved. But that's not what was happening and taking place as Jude is writing about this. They were these people were just shepherds of themselves, thinking of themselves. They would operate the ministry, they would lead the church and the ministry in a way where they thought of themselves first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and on. They just were doing whatever was right in their own eyes with no consideration for the good of others. You know what transformed things? We do a pretty, we do a pretty good job of this, but we could always be better. You know what's always awesome? 
And I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen here. I've seen it happen other places. That if we came together on Sunday morning and we, we walked into the doors with this mindset, who can I bless today? Instead of walking into the doors of the church saying, I wonder who's going to bless me today. Well, those are different perspectives. And if you come in going, well, is anybody going to talk to me today? Are they going to talk to me enough? Is that person going to come? Um, are we going to sing my songs? Hey, guess what? We're probably not going to sing your songs every Sunday. Okay? But, but just think about what happens if a if hundred people walk into this room thinking, what's somebody else going to do in my life today? And if they don't do it, then I'm going to be disappointed. And that's the mindset before you even come in. But can you imagine what the, the mindset would be like of getting out of your car and leaving your family fight because you weren't, they weren't ready to get in the car to come to church to be on time and just leaving that in the car and walking in here and saying this, I can't wait to find somebody today to bless, to find out how I can pray for them. And if we would do that, then we would shepherd ourselves by not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of the good for others just as Christ did. Who Philippians 2 says, had this mindset in himself. He had that. That he came to be a servant, not to lord things over, but he came to serve. And because he did that, he laid his life down and he died in our place as our substitute. And so, so the character of a minister should never be to, to shepherd and use the sheep for themselves, but they are to think about feeding the sheep. Here's the f- fourth imagery that Jude gives. He says this, these kind of leaders like Cain and Balaam and others who are false leaders, they are waterless clouds that are just swept along by the winds. So we're coming up on summertime. Are y'all ready for summertime? Some are like, no, I like this weather. Well, summertime's coming and it's Texas. It's going to be warm. And this will happen multiple days this summer. We will look on the radar and and to the north of us, these clouds are going to be really, really big and the radar is going to show rain. And we're going to go, yeah. And it gets about to Collin County, usually just south of Sherman. And what happens to every one of those storms in the summer? They just disappear. And so Jude is using this perspective that there are some ministers and some teachers of the gospel who ultimately are empty. They just give an appearance that they're going to give something refreshing. And ultimately, nothing like that happens. They are waterless clouds that are just swept along when the wind comes and they are blown away. You may know of this church, but... For many, many years, for several decades, the largest church attendance-wise in the United States was in a suburb of Chicago, and it was called Willow Creek. And they had church conferences after church conference. I never went to them. A lot of my friends went to them, and they were, they were kind of the leading edge of church stuff. Well, about 30 years into their church, they surveyed their people. And let me tell you what their practices were. Um, they would play secular music, and the band would on Sunday mornings. Uh, every, every sermon series was six ways to a successful this, 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 that, 
and all this kind of stuff that, that you have out there. And so after 30 years, they did a survey of their people. You know what they found out? They found out that nobody in the church knew any doctrine. And so this, this, this is a practice of waterless clouds gathering lots and lots and lots and lots of people, but not ultimately offering anything because there is an instability that's there. This is my prayer that I pray for myself. And I would ask you to pray for me and anybody else who teaches at our church. Moses wrote a song in Deuteronomy 32. And he begins it in this way. And this is my prayer for myself as I lead you. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. I want, when I preach and when I teach you, that it to never be my words, that it to be always deeply grounded and deep into God's word and that would fall upon your life as refreshing. And my great aim that Moses speaks about of himself here and he proclaims this is, he just says, I will do this when I speak. I will proclaim the Lord's name and I will give greatness to who he is. And waterless clouds pastor who pastors who just flit around to every new conference that comes up every year and new idea are not grounded leaders. Can I say I don't care. I don't care if you give me permission or not. <laughs> you know what I love about what we do here? And in about seven weeks, we're going to Asia, and I'll be gathered with leaders there. And this is one of the teachings that I'm going to do there. That when I finish in a few minutes, I don't have to show up to the office tomorrow morning and try to be creative to come up with what we're going to do next week. I already have the agenda for next week, and it's what God has already said. And I think if leaders in a church spend their time trying to figure out what to share with people instead of just sharing with people what God has already said, we've got the approach to this backwards. So I know next week I'm starting at verse 14. And some of you are like, are you going to get to verse 13? Yes, I am. Okay. I know that I'm going to get to verse 14. Because my responsibility is to not come up with ideas of what to preach. My responsibility is to affirm the greatness of God in what has already been said. That must be the direction. And so, so we cannot be waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Here's the, here's the next principle, and we're, we're going to finish this up. They are fruitless trees, these kind of leaders, in late autumn twice dead, uprooted. This happens every year. Out in the front part of our church here, we have a pear tree. In late autumn, 
All the pears are on the ground because the children of the church throw other pears up into the church and knock them down. Or they've fallen, or John comes and he picks them and sells them at the market. And they're gone. And the pears are gone, the leaves are gone, and you look at that tree and you go, that thing's dead. And you have to wait until about a month ago when these white flowers show up again indicating there's still life in the tree and then the leaves come and then the pears begin to grow. But in late fall, you don't know about that. Listen to the description that Jude gives here. He says, these ministers who are proclaiming things about Jesus are twice dead. Not only do they give the appearance that all trees give, fruit trees give in the late fall, where they all lose their leaves. And then, here's what the farmer will do when he finds out that that tree doesn't bud in the spring. He realizes that's a dead tree. Not only did it not have any fruit and leaves and life in the fall, it now has nothing. So what is that tree good for? Nothing. So what do they do? What's the farmer do? He uproots it. It's torn out of the ground. Now I want you to think about this. Jude's writing three and a half decades into the life of the church, and he says there were pastors in churches, leaders in churches already who were not born again and had teaching positions at churches. We moved to Germany in 2004. And when I got there... um, did some studying about the cultural climate before I got there. But when I got there, I found a study of the Lutheran pastors in Germany. They did a survey with Lutheran. Lutheran is not like us, not Protestant, not evangelical. But they did a survey with the Lutheran pastors in Germany. 71% of them were not born again. And about 80% of them did not affirm the authority of the Scripture. This is what we're talking about. You want to know why Germany is the way it is? How it's lost its spiritual heritage? It has fruitless trees in late autumn that are twice dead and uprooted who are preaching every Sunday in churches. And then he says, wild waves of the sea. We'll finish this up here. Wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. Some of you are beach people. Becca, can you put that picture up there? You've seen foam at a beach, right? Jude says this is what some pastors are like. They just are wild waves that stir up stuff. You wouldn't, uh, just, just some advice, you wouldn't want to get a solo cup and run it through that foam and drink it. And yet there are congregations all over the country today that that's what their leaders are giving them. Wild waves stirring up foam of dirt and offering nothing of substance. Oh, they're wild waves. Their wild waves are untamed. They're strong. They'll run over people, but they offer nothing of life. They just cast up a foam And the foam, Jude says, is the foam of their shame. That's why Isaiah wrote in 5720, 
but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Here's the last metaphor. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Much of history passed. People would, they would sail at nighttime by looking at what? Up in the sky. Stars, right? They would navigate by stars. Stars were a fixed point for navigation. So the people know, knew how to get to certain places and where north was and south. And they, they, would, they would navigate by these things. And so Jude says, listen, there are some ministries and some ministers, they're, they're not fixed stars They just wander around and they move. And so therefore, those that they lead have no idea where they ought to go because the pastor doesn't even know where he's going. He's not come to a place where his life is settled at a fixed point with fixed truth, fixed doctrine that he's settled on and he's teaching the people that are under them. And so these, Jude says... Just move around and they are ultimately no good for anyone. They're just wandering stars. And the ultimate aim of these wandering stars who are unregenerate, not born again, is the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever. Do not... Let me back up. I'm not very impressive. I'm, 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 just a, I'm just a guy that loves Jesus. There are some incredible communicators. And you and I need to be careful, even with them, that they're not a wandering star. Now, some, some great communicators, they have been fixed in their doctrine for decades and they are trustworthy. But these that just pop up and they espouse this and then two years later they write another book that kind of contradicts what they believed a couple years earlier and then ten years from now they'll have another new idea. They are a meteor that rises, that has no stability, that fades out. So we are not to follow comets or meteors. We are to have a fixed point of belief with leaders who embraced fixed truth that is eternal, and that's where we stay, in that lane. And if we don't do that, then we will find ourselves following people who do not know right doctrine. Because you can't can't count on them because they have built their lives on something that's moving. My God is a rock, and He is fixed. He is immovable. He is eternal. He is holy. He is beautiful. He is magnificent, and He is worthy of me week after week when it's my opportunity to stand before you to ascribe greatness to who He is and not to anything else. He is great. And if that's not our pathway, Jude warns the church here, 
that these kind of leaders like this, all that's destined for them is the gloomy darkness of hell. And I think some of these false teachers probably believe that they're in the kingdom. But the fruit of their life shows probably something else. Only ultimately God knows who is His. But we can see fruit and we can see the byproduct of certain things. And so it's important for us to know this. That I think that some people are going to stand before Jesus and they're literally going to be shocked when He says, Depart from me. I never knew you. Yeah, yeah, but, but, I, but, but I, I, did, I did this in your name, Matthew 7. Yeah, but I don't know you. We want him to know us. That's important. So what are the takeaways? From 11 to 13, these important things. Number one, Beware of leaders who create new ways that are not connected to the Scripture. Watch out for it. Secondly, beware of leaders who are in it for financial gain. And every decision that they make is tied to benefiting themselves and hiring them out to the new popular teaching or whatever. Thirdly, Watch out for leaders who gather others to attack godly leaders. Be careful. Have discernment. Fourthly, submit to the authority of God's word. That's the problem with Cain. That's the problem with Balaam. And that was the problem um, with the third guy that I just lost his mind, um, Korah. Neither one of them submitted to the authority of God's word. Two more. We must set our lives on a fixed and immovable point. And that is the word of God. We must fix our lives on a fixed, immovable point, God's word. Lastly, we must be a Berean. The Bereans were a group of people in Acts chapter 17 that when they heard Paul's teaching, they went to the scriptures to see if it was true or not. So I've told you this before. You should always check me as I'm preaching. We should always check any teaching. Does it line up with the truth of God's word? And you can read about the Bereans in Acts 17. 11 through 12. We compare everything to Scripture. This is important teaching. Very important for us to be aware. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be here. Let's pray.